So good morning, Peter. I'm not sure if you can hear me yet. I'll just give it a moment or two. I can. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. It's really good to have you with us, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us here today at Crescent Church. We're really looking forward to what you have to say on this important topic. I want to start by asking you a little bit about your work at Tyndale House before we progress into some questions um, more specifically on the reliability of the New Testament. Um, to begin with, Peter, Tyndale House is regarded as perhaps the foremost academic research center when it comes to the Bible. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, its role in supporting the Christian church? Yes, so it's a, it's a unique institution because it's not a degree award institution, it doesn't run courses, it's a research center and people come from around the world and study at Tyndale House. And people are working at the doctoral level and above, and we have about 50 spaces in the library, and people, I'm being, am I being muted? No. You can still hear me. We can still hear you. Let me know if you can't. Good. Um, anyway, we have lots of uh, spaces in uh, the uh, library. People come from around the world, and people um, uh, write lots and lots of books. Um, and people meet, plan conferences, get degrees, all sorts of things happen there. Um, I know uh, that you're, uh, at present you're um, fr good friends of um, uh, David Gooding, who, who uh, passed, passed away, uh, went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. Um, and um, where did he, uh, well, where did John Lennox meet David Gooding? It was at Tyndale House. Um, so people come together and uh, all sorts of ideas get conceived, which um, are then uh, hopefully go out and people are transformed and go out and serve the church. No, it's such a brilliant, it's such a wonderful organization, and we're so thankful for all that you're doing, Peter, through, through Tyndale House. Uh, in 2017, um, Tyndale published its Greek New Testament. Um, yeah. could, you, could you tell us a little bit about the, the importance of that particular piece of work? So, obviously, the New Testament is really important, and so we thought it was right to seek to edit that as carefully as it possibly could be, um, so that we could present the Word of God most accurately um, it could be. It's not that it's going to change people's Bibles in a radical way, uh, but when you've uh, typed that close to a million characters, um, then I do think it's the most carefully edited or printed edition of, of New Testament ever made. And we also were able to follow paragraphs from ancient manuscripts. So all of the paragraphs in there uh, are ancient they're not just a modern editorial decision that's often helpful to how you break up a passage as you think of it as a preacher here at Crescent Peter we're a, a bible-based fellowship and, and we we love God's word we we value it highly and, and as a result we're really grateful for the work you guys do um, in practical terms what can we be doing here as, as church members to, to support the work that you're involved in well, we love people to um, pray. Prayer support is always uh, the best support, but there are lots of other ways. Um, so um, we are mainly supported by uh, donations and we love uh, donations from those who have little to give uh, because we know uh, how in the Gospels, um, it's the woman who gives the two mites uh, whose work uh, continues to bear fruit, as in her example in giving has inspired billions of pounds worth of, of, of giving. And those who gave the really big gifts that paid for the stonemasons that built the temple um, actually are not bearing any fruit whatsoever. The temple was destroyed by the Romans and their investment goes for nothing. And that's sort of God's 
crazy freakonomics, if you like, uh, whereby uh, sometimes the, um, the what we think of as the economic value of a gift is actually inverted um, uh, when people give. So we love people to support, and you can do that through tinderhouse.com forward slash support. But there are other things as well, because you can um, get our magazine, which will uh, send you. It's called Inc. You can subscribe to that at our website. And that's trying to be like a Christian National Geographic, uh, give you a sense of um, details about the Bible, uh, which you won't get elsewhere, written at a popular level. Um, and we also want people to advocate. Maybe you can become a scholar. Now, think about this if you're a young person. Um, being a biblical scholar is not something particularly magical. It's just like if you're a medic, you need to have 10 years or more training in order to do something well. Well, in order to know something really seriously uh, about the Bible, there's all sorts of details to know. And you could do, you don't have to be the brainiest person. Uh, you just need to have a heart to serve God and use your brain for it. And it could be that um, you decide you're going to become the world's expert on Bethsaida. So you visit there lots of times, you dig there and you find out what you can. Or it might be you decide you're going to be the world's expert on, say, Latin manuscripts in Dublin. That's also fine. There are lots of different things to know about. No one can know about them all. But we do need Christian educators who are going to do their work so that when we've got all this misinformation and disinformation coming at us, um, uh, we're actually able to stand up and say, hey, that's wrong, and this is why, and set the record straight and be prepared to equip uh, the church. That's that's uh, We need a whole army of people to do that. That's brilliant, Peter. Those are such practical uh, and helpful ways that we can get involved. Thank you for sharing those. I want to move um, specifically to kind of the, the question in hand today. Um, to begin with, Jesus Christ is the central figure within the Christian faith. And I suppose that the question that kind of comes to mind for, for a seeker, uh, to begin with, for a thoughtful non-Christian maybe, uh, is are the records of Jesus' life accurate? Do we have access to reliable and accurate records of what Jesus actually said and did? And so that's the question I'd like us to consider over the next 30 minutes or so. Um, and to begin with, I want to start outside the Bible, Peter. Um, is there any credible historical evidence about Jesus outside of the Gospels? Well, it's funny you should ask. As a matter of fact, there is. Um, uh, so here, I just happened to have on my desk, it was a metre away, um, a book. You can see it's Harvard University. Oh, no, let's get this right. Harvard. Uh, there you are. Um, and here we have uh, a text for, of Latin uh, from uh, Tastus. And it's all about Christians and Christ. And you get people from around the time talking about uh, Christ. That's about the great fire in Rome in the year 64 and how uh, Nero blamed Christians for starting that. That tells you there's a whole load of Christians, uh, followers of Christ in Rome from within about 35 years of um, uh, Christ's death and resurrection. Um, these are the sorts of records there are. There are lots of others. Um, but the main records of Christ, of course, are the Gospels and uh, as they should be, his followers wrote about him. Brilliant, Peter. And as I read, as I read over your book this week, I was really encouraged by some of the uh, extra biblical records. I was surprised and amazed, actually, as I, as I read some of those. Um, the four gospel records seem to have been written by eyewitnesses or by people who base their work on eyewitness accounts. Um, is that a credible claim? And what evidence is there that the writers of these four books were actually close to what was going on? So 
I've not spent much time in Belfast. Lovely. I've been to Northern Ireland about four times, been on holiday there, my profile picture and so on uh, there. But if I were to claim that I came from Belfast, not only would my accent probably give me away pretty quickly, but I don't. But within five minutes of you questioning me, I would be shown as a fraud. It just wouldn't work. Now, it's the same when people write text. They're writing about Capernaum. You look do they know about anything about Capernaum? And as a matter of fact, you find the Gospels do. Uh, they know the local industries. Oh, there was a fishing industry. There was a tax industry going on there. Uh, even when Jesus in Mark uh, 9 has his saying about the millstone hung around uh, uh, someone's neck, uh, um, that uh, uh, better for a millstone to be hung around neck than that they offend a, a child uh, and the millstone to be thrown into the sea. Well, funnily enough, Capernaum's on the sea with a millstone industry. It's all these sorts of things that you have throughout the Gospels. They uh, give people the right sorts of names for the time and place. This is showing at least they have enough familiarity with the area to get their information right. But I think we can actually go further and start looking at the patterns of the words. We can analyze them and see how any of the forgery ideas about people making up Jesus's words just don't work as well as accepting that they're true. I mean, someone has to come up with the golden rule to do unto others what you'd have them do to you. Um, who's the genius? Is it Jesus or does he have genius disciples who make up really good ideas and put them on his lips? I mean, it, it, the, the, thinking it's Jesus, Jesus is a far easier hypothesis. Yeah, and I, I think that really comes out when you compare the gospel records with something like the gospel of Thomas, these kind of pseudo-gospels. Um, what evidence is there that, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't writing from distance when set against something like the gospel of Thomas, for example? Yeah, so I like to think that the apocryphal gospels, as they nowadays get called, and you can get a, a good penguin copy of those uh, by um, a friend of mine, Simon Gathercole, who, who's a, an evangelical, um, you can... Uh, get those and you just see that they don't have the same quality or, or, or caliber and when you read the gospel of thomas it begins telling you it's the secret words that jesus says because it has to explain to you why no one's ever heard of them before and it really is telling you read this and not the other ones but it just doesn't know geography it doesn't know the culture um and it seems to be based on um the four gospels so in other words um the forgery um, is showing you there's a real thing, just like people forge 50 pound notes, presumably because there are real ones. I was wondering if you could share a little bit more Not about- Not recently. Sorry, Peter. I was wondering if you could share a little bit, bit more about the, the actual names used in the Gospel of Thomas, for example, <laughs> versus the names used in the New Testament accounts. I thought that was fascinating, just the accuracy of the names used. Yep. So within the New Testament, we find the most popular male name is Simon. And uh, that's also the most popular name outside the New Testament uh, for Jewish males from Israel, Palestine. Um, also, you find that the top woman's name, sorry, the sunshine here. Uh, so I'll just uh, get that off me. Um, the top woman's name is Mary outside the Gospels and inside. And there is also a pattern with these common names that you need to have something to differentiate them from other names. So that's why you get Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Simon of Cyrene, uh, Simon the leper, Simon the Canaanite, and so on. Cut Simon the zealot, another way of saying Simon the Canaanite. Uh, Simon Peter, you distinguish these names, you disambiguate them. Now, when you get to the Gospel of Thomas, it's got Jesus and 
Didymus Judas Thomas, which is a really strange name because that means twin Judas twin. It's not an appropriate name for the time and place at all. Um, and it, anything it's got is copied from uh, the four Gospels, but it simply doesn't get those sorts of things um, in the right proportion. The Gospel names across the four Gospels basically match the proportions you would find if you look at the same names in the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus and other writings from the time, that's an astounding thing because we know how easy it is to forget names. So um, most of us, if, if we were making up a story about a place we'd never visited, we'd never be able to get the right names. Even if we had visited the place, we probably wouldn't be able to intuit the right proportion between them. And the Gospels have got that sort of thing right. I think that's such a mark of authenticity, Peter. I really enjoyed uh, reading about that. Um, so in your book, Can We Trust the Gospels? Um, you make a striking comment about Mark chapter 6 and verse 39. It's in the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And you say that Mark uh, says that the people sat down on the green grass. Um, why does that little detail have significance in the debate over eyewitness testimony? Well, I think that it's uh, the sort of thing which an eyewitness uh, could say or someone who's really clever could put in in order to make it look like their story is authentic. And you try and test between those two hypotheses and you realize, actually, there's more going on here because um, you've got a detail in Mark uh, that many people are coming and going, but it doesn't explain why. And then you've got a detail in John that it tells you it's Passover time. And suddenly you realize, well, Passover time is a really busy time when it's the biggest commuting time of the year, people going down to Jerusalem. So when Jesus says in Mark, come aside, because it's really quite busy, um, uh, come aside from the road, effectively, that fits together with the detail you have in John. Now, if it was Passover time in John, we know what time of the year it is. And you th can then look at precipitation uh, for that area. And Luke uh, tells you it is from uh, Bethsaida. So we look uh, uh, near Bethsaida. You then look at a chart there and you see you've just had five of the greatest months of rain of the year. So that is where, you, you know, you, you'd have uh, green grass um, as it's put in, in Mark's Gospels. So all of these details come together and it doesn't prove the miracle. But most people who try to explain away miracles have this idea that people repeat the story and they change details. But there's no way of having the... Um, big parts of the story exaggerated and dis uh, and distorted and the little details all kept in order um, that would be a selective corruption of information without any mechanism it just doesn't work so these things uh, it's better to explain it as um, being true brilliant I love that I love that the little details can can tell you so much um all that evidence might convince someone that the gospel writers were very close to the action but what evidence is there that we have access to the actual words of Jesus? <laughs> well, I've been working on this on a, a couple of Jesus' speeches. One is the um, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where I think we've got lots of memorization techniques in there. Uh, but also it's a lesson that's taught. So it's not just that he stands up and speaks for 12 minutes and that's Matthew five through to seven um actually the opening begins with alliteration and so on right the way through there are memorization techniques and it begins by saying he taught them but um what i'm working on more actually is um, luke chapter 15 which is jesus's longest um parable uh the story of the prodigal son or the two sons and what we find there is it's a work of genius it's a very simple story but it's got 
deep references running throughout to the book of Genesis. That is, um, the father in that uh, uh, story is modeled on Abraham, the only other old person in the Bible who runs, um, the only other person to divide his inheritance um, while he's still alive. And of course, when he is holding a feast uh, for Isaac's weaning, that's when the older brother despises the feast and loses his inheritance. So it's got all that. Um, and the first word from the father is the word quick, go and get the fatted calf. That's uh, what Abraham says in Genesis chapter 18. But it's also modeled off the story of um, Jacob and Esau. The only person in the Bible who runs, embraces and kisses someone um, is Esau in Genesis 33 verse 4. And of course, he does that when Jacob's cheated him out of his in whole inheritance uh, and had to go off to a far country where he looks after animals and, and so on. And uh, the st uh, story of the prodigal son, of course, has the... Um, uh, returning son gets put in the best robe and given a ring and and and, and so on. Um, th that uh, really is very much like the Joseph story, isn't it? Uh, the Joseph uh, story where G Genesis 41, 42, uh, where um, Joseph is uh, rushed out of prison to Pharaoh and given robe and ring. And of course, Joseph is the only other son that the father thought was dead and alive again, lost and is found. And uh, you've got a great famine there as well. You've got so many of these uh, tie-ups uh, where effectively there's one mind behind all of the details of the story. Now, what you can't do is say a committee invented that story. It's been it's come from one person and it's got to come from that one person and be transmitted in its details. Now, if you decide Jesus didn't say it, Luke made it up, then you make Jesus's follower, Luke, a total genius. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not saying he's not clever, but it's it's a rather counterintuitive way of, of looking at things that the I mean, Luke wouldn't be even famous if he hadn't written the gospel. Um, so I think it's far simpler to say, again, it all comes from uh, Jesus. And there's there's more that we could say there. The tie up with Genesis chapter 18 is not just that the Abraham says quick, um, and go off, get the fatted calf. It's also quick, three, get three seers of fine flour. That's what he says to Sarah. Well, who told a story about three seers of fine flour? Oh, um, it's uh, Jesus's shortest parable, isn't it? So it rather shows that Jesus had that on the mind. That parable about um, the three seers of fine flour is in Matthew and in Luke. The parable of the two sons is only in Luke. So it's far more, uh, you can't say Luke invented uh the parable about the three seers so all of that together is just simply explained if you say jesus started all this teaching and it gets transmitted in matthew and luke yeah and, and any other explanations almost overcomplicates uh, the situation to, to deep dive for, for a moment uh, here peter in your book you suggest that jesus might have spoken greek as well as aramaic um, which mm -hmm. i thought was really really fascinating can you give us some evidence to support that claim well the Gospels are in Greek um, and nowhere does it say that he taught in Aramaic. And it's important to point that out. So in uh, Mark, it will re uh, report that speaking to a 12 year old girl, he said Talitha Kumi. So uh, he speaks Aramaic to a 12 year old girl. Mark 7, uh, 34. You also get him saying Ephatha to someone who, who's um, deaf uh, uh, and, uh, and dumb, uh, be opened. And of course, on the cross, he also says uh, that those, those words. Um, and he'll say Abba uh, when he's in, in prayer to his father. But there's nothing about him teaching in Aramaic. And it could be, of course, you speak one way to people 
to, to children and to family members and another way in public. Um, and certainly for the lesson on the Mount, immediately before it says there's all these crowds gathering and some of them are from the Decapolis. Well, that's um, Greek for 10 cities. It's the um, pagan cities mainly out east of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, so him striking up in Aramaic wouldn't necessarily have communicated very well. But a lot of the idea is that people have, oh, um, he was like a peasant and couldn't really um, uh, uh, speak languages and, and so on. But rem remember that uh, in Matthew's gospel, uh, that the family, a holy family, go down to Egypt. Well, what, what language do they speak there? Well, they either speak late Egyptian or more probably they're speaking Greek because that's what Jews in Egypt do. Uh, and if Joseph even gets a temporary job there, he has to do that. And Jesus has disciples with names like Philip, Philippos and Andrew, Andreas. They are Greek names. Um, he uh, heals blind Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is a fascinating name because it's Bar is Aramaic for son. In Timaeus is a dialogue by the Greek philosopher Plato. So they probably had a grandfather who liked Plato. And all the languages are just sloshing round together. Um, and so to think that Jesus only speaks one language, um, I think it's something that we get really from the Romantic movement, which likes to romanticize the idea of Jesus uncorrupted by Greek philosophy uh, and, and so on. Um, and uh, we need to step away from that. And remember, he's an itinerant preacher and you um, that the land is multilingual. The Romans in the East are using Greek. And so actually people would have used all sorts of different uh, languages. Nicodemus, another nice, very Greek name there uh, you get in, in the Gospels. So uh, Jesus, I, I, I think, uh, could have taught in, in multiple languages. So we shouldn't think, oh, no, we've only got his teaching as it's been translated and maybe mistranslated. No, uh, we can have his teaching the very words he said. Brilliant. Thank you, Peter. One of the biggest controversies when it comes to the Bible is this question of transmission errors. So can we trust that the copy of, of scripture we have in our hands today is lines up with it, uh, it as it was originally given? Uh, and Tyndall House has done a lot of work in that area. How, how have you gone about establishing the original text from so many different manuscripts? Well, what we do is, is we work with generally the earliest. The earliest aren't always uh, the best, but you, you gather all the information. And of course, lots of people have been gathering information on manuscripts about the Bible uh, for a long time. We're getting databases, more and more pictures online, so you can actually check uh, things. And so it's not that you're starting from scratch. And the great thing is the information is very public. So when people say, oh, this is all changed, you can say, well, when did it change? Because let's remember that there are manuscripts in, in, in London and Paris and Dublin and St. Petersburg and Athens. And if someone's going to change them, you have to say, well, when do they change them? How does that work? Um, it, and, and so you can actually show that the sort of changes that conspiracy theorists suggest can't have happened in the uh, Bible and also with the New Testament, it gets translated into lots of languages. So if you wanted to uh, translate, sorry, if you wanted to change the Bible after a few centuries, you'd have to change it in all the different languages it had gone into. And there's no Pope, no Roman emperor or anyone in history who's been in a position to change everyone's Bibles like that. 
Yeah, I think, I think that's fascinating. I also was struck by, by something you mentioned about um, how even older translations into English have changed very little over a period of, of hundreds of years. I wonder if you, you could speak to that. Yeah, so again, the footnotes of a modern Bible will generally tell you the greatest um, textual issues that there are. And you'll sometimes see, see those um, uh, where uh, verses will be uh, marked uh, as, uh, as disputed. Uh, and these are printed in the hundreds of millions by modern Bible publishers. So there's no uh, there's no secret uh, that's being hidden and there's no you know, manuscript locked away in the Vatican that falsifies everything or whatever. Um, it, it really is just very transparent. And uh, Bible translations uh, got um, uh, in, in the first millennium were, were going everywhere from India um, across to Ireland and the West. And, and and Spain, and so the idea that anyone could just change everyone's Bibles just doesn't uh, stack up at all. Thank you, Peter. My final question is um, concerning your own kind of confidence uh, in the gospel records. So you're an academic who's been at the forefront of this scholarly debate for, for many years now. You've deba debated the likes of, of Bart Ehrman and others. Um, what confidence do you personally have that the gospel records give us an accurate record of, of Jesus Christ? Well, I think an increasing confidence. I mean, what I, I went through a period of doubt when I was a, an undergraduate student and uh, I was confronted by people who were very brainy, knew the Bible better than anyone I didn't, I'd ever met and didn't believe it. There are some very, very smart people out there who don't believe the Bible. And it's not that they're ignorant of the Bible, but the way the Bible works is that if you seek, you find, and if you don't seek, you stumble. And evidence is structured so that if you want to find a reason not to believe the Bible, you will find loads of reasons. There are lots of things in there that could offend you. Um, but from the other side, I found that um, it very, very rationally fulfilling to trust the Bible. That is, trusting the Bible has led to more discovery and more reasons to trust the Bible. It's a very positive feedback loop. Um, and of course, someone could say it's confirmation bias, but I think there's something more objective to it than that. Um, that is, uh, I'm, all the time I'm discovering new grounds to trust the Bible that I can present to an outsider in a rational way. If someone here this morning is maybe not a Christian believer and they were thinking of exploring this further, what would you be recommending to someone like that? Well, I'd say read the Bible. Uh, the Bible's only about 75 hours long. The Gospels are only about nine hours long. It's not a, um, a huge task. Uh, so maybe, uh, well, it's um, uh, significantly shorter than the Harry Potter series. Uh, so I'd say uh, do that and um, badger a Christian um, friend or acquaintance uh, to um, pester with any questions you have about what you read. But I'd say that's the most important thing to do. It's, it's really exciting um, there's nothing quite like it. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. I've really enjoyed this conversation and um, been blessed by your book. Um, we're so grateful for, for the work you and all your colleagues do at Tyndall House, and we'd love to continue supporting you uh, at Crescent Church here. Um, that's a wrap on the interview. Let's just turn to a word of prayer now. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the conversation we've had today with Peter. Lord, thank you for the work he's involved in at Tyndale House. Uh, thank you for, for him and all his colleagues. 
uh, Lord, seeking to, to serve you in this academic context. Uh, Lord, thank you for the Greek New Testament that they've published. Thank you for Peter's uh, book, Can We Trust the Gospels? We pray that you might use these resources uh, and all the other things that they produce, uh, Lord, to build up uh, Christians in their faith, to increase confidence in your word. We realize that it is uh, under attack from so many angles. Uh, so, Lord, would you fortify Christians uh, through the work of Tyndale House? Uh, Lord, we also pray that um, their work might have a persuasive uh, focus when it comes to, to non-Christians too. We think of the likes of Bart Ehrman and others, uh, Lord, who in many ways it seems impossible that they would be saved, that they would come to a confident hope in your word. But we do pray for that. Lord, we pray that critics in the academic world and others, uh, Lord, will come to faith, will be persuaded uh, by your truth. So, Father, we thank you um, that, that your word is true, that we can have confidence in it. We ask that you might continue to build uh, and grow that confidence as the years go by. In Jesus' name, amen.